Hello, and welcome to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I'm Dan Burke, your host and movie critic, and you're listening to Words on Film on WBCALP Boston. I will be reviewing some of the newest movies out right now. For this show, I'm reviewing two brand new feature films, and I'm also reviewing two clusters of short films that have been nominated for Oscars. The Oscars are going to be in a week. Uh, Well, for those of you who are listening uh, later on, it's going to be on March 12th, uh, 2023. And I've seen the live-action short films as well as the um, animated short films that have been nominated for Oscars. I have not yet seen the documentary short subjects, but... That will be me playing my game of Oscar catch-up. But let me get to the newest films that are out in theaters right now. The first movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Cocaine Bear. This is the latest film directed by Elizabeth Banks, and this is her third feature film as a director. Previously, she had directed Pitch Perfect 2, and I think she did a pretty good job with that film. She directed a reboot of Charlie's Angels in 2019 that was a critical and commercial failure. I wish I could say more about that, but I haven't actually seen it yet. So Cocaine Bear is her next stab at directing, and she's coming back from a loss. And this is apparently based on a true story. Uh, Specifically, there was a drug smuggler by the name of Andrew C. Thornton II, who in 1985 dropped several shipments of cocaine from a a single-engine plane. And this is actually detailed in the very beginning of the movie. He attempts to parachute out with a duffel bag full of cocaine, but he hits his head on the plane, causing him to fall out of the plane. And being unconscious, he can't... He isn't able to... um, (laughs) He isn't able to work his parachute, so he ends up falling to his death. This is 100% true. So he landed in Knoxville, Tennessee, and the shipments of cocaine that he threw out of the plane actually landed in several places in the Chattahoochee Oconee National Forest, which is a national or a combination of national forests in northern Georgia on the border between Georgia and Tennessee. When this cocaine landed in the Chattahoochee Oconee National Forest, there was a female American black bear who eats some of the cocaine, becoming highly aggressive and also attacking several of the humans that are within the forest, including some hikers by the name of Elsa and Olaf who are just there to enjoy the wilderness. There's also, there are several uh, subplots here. For instance, there is a, there's somebody who works for the cartel who is uh, played by Ray Liotta. He's simply known as Sid, and he's there to retrieve the cocaine as quickly as possible. Also aiding him is his son, Peter, who's played by Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and also a friend of Peter's, whose name is David, who's played by O'Shea Jackson Jr., So they don't use drugs, but when you find out that there's millions of dollars worth of cocaine in the wilderness, it's pretty understandable why they would go uh, retrieve it. There's also a subplot involving a young mother who's a nurse by the name of Sari, who's played by Carrie Russell, 
whose daughter, Dee Dee, who's played by Brooklyn Prince, who had previously, she'd been in a lot of movies, but her debut was in the movie The Florida Project, which came out in 2015, and that was an excellent film, which co-starred Willem Dafoe. And she ran away from home into the uh, Chattahoochee Oconee National Forest. And they are trying to, well, Carrie Russell's character is trying to retrieve her daughter, Dee Dee, with the help of a friend of hers. And uh, they're doing that while trying to avoid the advances of this cocaine-riddled black bear. And they also enlist the assistance of the park ranger, whose name is Liz, who's played by Margot Martindale. And I kind of doubt that any of these characters are actually based on real people. However, there has the the part about drug smuggler Andrew Thornton II um, distributing or throwing cocaine out of a single-engine plane and then knocking himself out on the way down and falling to his death that's true. What's also true is there was a female American black bear who did eat some of this cocaine and she ended up uh, dying as a result. She ate uh, 75 pounds of cocaine. And you're told in the very beginning of the film through a written prologue about how to defend yourself if you are if you come within contact of a grizzly bear or a black bear. And it's very vague the way they, they tell you how to defend yourself. You, I would imagine that if I was going into the woods, and I've done some camping before, but never ran into any dangerous animals like any bears, but they tell you in the beginning of the film that the best way to ward off a black bear is to fight them. Yeah, for a human being to try to put up a fight with a black bear. It doesn't tell you how to fight with them. It, it doesn't tell you exactly what you should do. It just tells you you should f- fight, which to me sounds like an incredibly stupid idea. But that is the premise that this film goes with. And it's not saying that, I'm not saying that the characters in the film fight the bear. They don't. They do what any reasonable person would do, which is run the other way, which seems to be, I would imagine, a logical step. But... It doesn't work with some of the characters in this film because this bear who's riddled on cocaine is not only very violent, but he, but she also happens to be very fast. So there is a lot going here, and this film is very much like not only a comedy, but also one of those schlocky, um, exploitative films, very much like the ones that Roger Corman made on en masse from the 60s to today. And it could be compared, I think, pretty easily to films like Snakes on a Plane, uh, for example. So there is a lot of silliness involved with it, and there are some funny moments. I actually thought the funniest parts of this film were the ones with uh, Margot Martindale as the Ranger. And Margot Martindale has been acting for over 40 years. She's usually in a lot of films like this where she is acting alongside people who are much better known than she is. So rarely does she, well, she never gets starring billing, first of all, but she rarely outshines a lot of the bigger actors here. But I thought she was the best part of this film. And the parts where I got the biggest laughs and also the ones that are the most violent and the most gruesome are the ones involving Margot Martindale. Some of the events in the film are 
contrived, but there's one especially funny scene where Margo Martindale's character is taken away by ambulance drivers, but I'm not going to reveal what happened, but everything that happens on film is very gruesome and very funny. I didn't really get into the subplot involving Ray Liotta's character trying to retrieve the cocaine. God knows he's been in better films where he's played a slimy cocaine smuggler, and I'm thinking primarily, of course, of Goodfellas. This movie is not Goodfellas, and and Ray Liotta doesn't quite do as well in this film as he did in Goodfellas and several others, but it is very self-aware. It kind of knows what it needs to be. I think it does kind of suffer here and there from too many supporting characters, some people's backstories we don't really care about in the grand scheme of things. And also there were parts that I thought were a little too violent that did not involve the bear. Now, the parts that did involve the bear that were violent, a lot of times worked more than they didn't work. There were a few parts that kind of um, fell flat, but the parts that were violent that didn't involve the bear, I actually didn't think were entirely necessary. And some of the characters, some of the supporting characters that I didn't mention were kind of annoying and it wasn't really clear why they were there. But Cocaine Bear is kind of fun and the parts with Margot Martindale were well worth the price of admission, which is why I give Cocaine Bear my rating of a checkout. I think it, it is very self-aware of how ridiculous a premise it is. Certainly the fact that it is based on a true story has it grounded in reality. And it is very fun to to see in, in certain aspects, but there were elements that could have been left on the cutting room floor. And I think that when Cocaine Bear tried to be too ambitious for a schlockbuster, that's when it kind of fell apart, but it was enjoyable for what it was. It just could have been better. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Jesus Revolution, which, as you might imagine, is a faith-based film, but it is based on a true story of what was known as the Jesus Movement in uh, on the West Coast during the late 1960s and early 1970s. One of the co-directors of this film is John Irwin, who also brought us several other uh, films, some that were faith-based, some that weren't. The most notable film of which he directed was the film I Can Only Imagine, which is not only faith-based, but like Jesus' Revolution, is based on a true story. John Irwin directs this film with Brett, uh, excuse me, Brent McCorkle, who also, he didn't direct I Can Only Imagine or co-direct it, uh, but he did uh, actually contribute to the soundtrack to I Can Only Imagine. So faith-based films are movies that I kind of have to take with a grain of salt. And I do have issues with faith-based films. For one, I think some of the worst faith-based films are the ones that say that it's not enough to believe in God. 
you have to a to you know go to church every Sunday, pray very loudly, literally, and tell everyone you know about Jesus. That is going to make you lose friends more than anything else you could possibly do. I think you'd probably make more friends preaching Satanism than you were than you would talking about Jesus. Because when you talk about Jesus, you you run the gamut of sounding pretentious. I suppose you do too when you preach Satanism. And I am not saying that you should preach Satanism. Absolutely not. Uh, but again, some people who are born again Christians or people who have been rebaptized sometimes take their newfound faith a little too far. And sometimes I feel like this movie with its characters did take things a bit too far. But my issue with this movie was it is based on a true story, but there are some facts that they cherry picked. And there are other things that could have made an intriguing film that were left on the cutting room floor. But this is uh, the true story of the National Spiritual Awakening in the late 1960s and early 1970s and its origins within a community of teenage hippies in Southern California. So, for those of you who either lived through the 60s or you remember the 60s, the 60s were a time of radical social change in just about every avenue, and especially when it came to Christianity. There were a lot of things that happened in the 60s. For example, there was John Lennon controversially saying that the Beatles were bigger than Jesus. There was also Vatican II, which was a radical change in the way that Catholicism was has been practiced since then. And there was also the controversial cover of Time magazine that's that asked, is God dead? Now, I wasn't saying God is dead, although that was a quote that was from Frederick Nietzsche hundreds of a um, hundred years before. But it posed a question that got a lot of people mad, even though Time magazine was asking a question, not making a declarative statement. But that's where we find a pastor by the name of Chuck Smith, who's played by Kelsey Grammer. And he is the pastor of a church in Southern California that has a marginal um, attendance rate. But their attendance increases when there is a charismatic young, shall we say, hippie who is a Jesus freak by the name of Lonnie Frisbee, who play, who's played by Jonathan Rumi. And Lonnie Frisbee believes in a lot of the same things that Chuck Smith does, but his approach to religion and the word of Jesus is radically different. And it's not just in the way that he dresses. It's also in the way that he preaches the word of God. And as you might expect, Lonnie Frisbee brings in a a, a different crowd than Pastor Chuck Smith is used to seeing. And this movie also follows another aspiring preacher by the name of Greg Laurie, who is a little younger than Lonnie Frisbee, and he's played by a young actor named Joel Courtney. And I did like some of the scenes here where Greg Laurie is struggling to determine what what it is that he believes. And there's one great scene where Lonnie Frisbee actually baptizes Greg Laurie. And when Greg Laurie gets his head dunked underwater. I thought the the scene that came after that was was very well inspired. 
However, the, the movie does have a few weaknesses. For one thing, it leaves out some very crucial details about the lives of Chuck Smith and Lonnie Frisbee. For example, there's one scene that alludes to Lonnie Frisbee having some troubles in his marriage. But what the movie does not reveal is that Lonnie Frisbee eventually got divorced and he also came out of the closet. Yeah, he came out as a gay man. The movie does state that he died in 1993, which is true, but it does not state how he died. And it it actually turns out that he died from AIDS, which I feel like the movie pulled a punch in not revealing to the audience because it wanted to shall we say, pander to the people who would see this movie in a heartbeat, who would line up outside and would probably consider the movies of the MCU to be too satanic and too divergent of the word of God. And I think that does the audience, regardless of what they believe, a disservice, which is really unfortunate. There are also some other parts of this movie where there were subplots here and there and some characters that were stereotypical. For example, there's a a relationship that forms between, at first, straight-laced Greg Laurie, who's going to a military school, and then he meets a young woman by the name of Dodie, who's played by Mina Sundwall. And they do have good chemistry together, but their relationship and how it progresses is way too drawn out plus he meets her well-to-do family and her father is one of those guys who you know has the big mustache and his and his thumbs are always in his pants pockets and he also doesn't really approve very much of Greg and this is something we have seen before but when comparing this to other faith-based films, I think it is good in the sense that it doesn't demonize people who are not one way or the, or yeah, not one way or the other when it comes to their belief in God or their belief in Christianity. And I liked that about it, but there was one other thing I didn't like, which I, I should also mention. There are parts where Lonnie Frisbee is preaching to a large group of people and he does this sort of uh, televangelist thing where he clairvoyantly believes that there are people in the audience who have been suffering from a certain illness, so he touches their forehead, and then he says, you are healed. And this is something that hucksters who preach the word of God do constantly. It's something that Jim Jones did. And Lonnie Frisbee is a much better per or was a much better person than Jim Jones was for reasons you could probably look up on your phones. But again, when he's employing the same tactics as Jim Jones does, you know, towards the second half of the film, he instantly loses credibility. But Jesus Revolution has some good things in it. I do give it a marginal checkout because I do think the acting is good. I did like the performances here of Jonathan Rumi, Kelsey Grammer, and Joel Courtney. I did think that when the movie tried to pass off Lonnie Frisbee's uh, being a, a prophet as opposed to being a preacher, that's when the movie got off the rails a little bit. Plus, there were some biographical Um, bits and pieces that they could have included and could have made it a more intriguing film. Plus, there are other subplots and other 
backstories of characters that I thought took up way too much time in this film. But for a faith-based film, it's pretty good. It's just, For a biographical film, it does fall short, but I do give it a marginal recommendation. But I don't think it will change anybody's minds or perspectives who believe one way or the other. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. So I've reviewed my two feature-length films for this show, and now it's time for me to get into a number of short films that I have to review for you. And they are in two segments. The first category, which I'm going to reveal for you right now, are the five nominees for the Academy Award for Best short film in the live action category. And these are films that have come out uh, all over the world. Interestingly enough, there are no American nominees for best short film this year. And that's not a bad thing either. If anything, it's great because it shows that people all over the world make very intriguing films that we might not be able to see had it not been for the Oscars and shorts.tv releasing their films in theaters, particularly art house theaters. And I do have a hope one day that these films would be easier to access, although the fact that the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, in collaboration with Shorts.TV, are able to release these in theaters nationwide is still a very good start. But I do think that there should be better ways to access some of these uh, shorts and not necessarily the ones that are nominated for Oscars. But that's another tangent for another time. Let me get into a brief synopsis of the films that are nominated in this category. And the way I'm going to do it is I'm going to tell you of the five nominees what I think are the least best working my way up to the best. So starting with number five and working my way up to number one. And while I'm doing that, I'm going to tell you what I loved about the films and also a brief plot synopsis in addition to some other noteworthy things about the films. So for the Academy Awards for Best Short Film in the live action category, my number five most favorite film in this list of nominees is Ivalu. And Ivalu is a film that comes out of Denmark. And it is a film about a young woman who's looking for her sister, Ivalu. And it takes her on a metaphysical and spiritual journey in order to find Ivalu. This film was made by Anders Walter and Rebecca Prusen. They have some amazing cinematography that goes with this film. And the film has, as I said, some amazing cinematography, but I felt almost like I didn't quite know where the story was going, and the way it ended felt largely inconclusive. And maybe that was the point of the film, but I felt like it needed something substantial to end it. And that's why it's probably my least favorite of the 
the, the nominees here, but just to give you a general idea, all these films are great. It's just this is the least best of the great films. So, Ivaloo is my number five pick for best live-action short films. Number four is The Pupils, which is a film that is brought to you by Alfonso Cuaron, who directed and wrote it, and Alice Rohrwacher. And The Pupils take, takes place in Italy and is entirely Italian throughout. And it takes place in an orphanage um, of young girls. And as the movie progresses, you find out that it takes place during World War II, where not only is there a, a war going on, and these pupils have it bad because even though they are good people and they're run... And, and they're in an orphanage that's run by nuns. They, their country is, part, is one of the Axis powers and is probably losing the war. And because of this, the pupils are starving and living very meagerly. And what makes this even more um, confounding is the fact that the film takes place around Christmas or Natale in Italy. And... I thought that the movie did have a very good premise, and actually Disney, surprisingly enough, uh, co-produced and co-released this film. I don't know if you can find it on Disney+, Plus, but my guess is you probably will soon. This film, I thought, was a little too disorganized. I thought there were some subplots here and there that could have made good stories on their own. But I did think there was some very good character development. There were just some parts where I didn't really know where the film was going, both in terms of its story as well as its role in the grand scheme of Italy's role in World War II. But it did have some very good cinematography. There were some parts of the film that were very funny, and uh, everyone who acted in the film did an amazing job. So The Pupils is my fourth most favorite film of the best live-action short film nominees. My third choice is a film that comes out of Norway that's called Night Ride. And this is where a woman of very short stature is waiting for the uh, public transit or the commuter rail in her native Norway. And it, this also takes place during Christmas, interestingly enough. And she very reluctantly hijacks the night rail. And what she's doing is illegal, but she also bears witness to a homophobic and transphobic crime. And the way she handles that is very thought-provoking, as well as very funny. And I'm not going to reveal exactly what happens here, but this is the film that I saw second, and after seeing it after Ivaloo, I was very taken in by it. I thought it told an amazing story. It was one of those films where you didn't quite know where it, where it was going, but the way it concluded, I thought was perfect. Plus, I actually want to go to Norway during Christmas after seeing this film because this movie made Norway at night look almost magical, which I don't think was the intention. So that's my third favorite, Night Ride, which is brought to you by Gautlid Larsen and Eric Tivetin. So my number two favorite nominee for best short film live action is a film that is called The Red Suitcase. 
And this is a film that comes out of Luxembourg, and it is about a young woman from Iran who flies into Luxembourg, and at first you don't really know why. And she does indeed have a red suitcase, and she's very reluctant to pick it up, and she's also very reluctant to leave the terminal. And as the movie progresses, you learn why she's so reluctant. So it goes from being a film that you think is going in one direction, but it ends up going in another one. But once it goes in that other direction, you're totally on board with it. Plus, the ending is in many ways both a relief and very heartbreaking. And I don't want to reveal any more than what I've already revealed. But The Red Suitcase has been written by and directed by Cyrus Nesvod. It is not, as far as I know, based on a true story, but it definitely feels very real. And this is the film that I feel like the people who were in the audience with me as I was watching these short films identified with the most. But it's not my favorite. And I do have my biases, so I will reveal my most favorite nominee for Best Short Film in the Live Action category. And that movie is An Irish Goodbye, which, as you might imagine, was made in Ireland and was brought to you by Tom Berkeley and Ross White. And it's a film about two brothers, uh, one of whom has Down syndrome and is in need of assisted living, and both of them live on a farm, and their mother dies. So they take their their mother's cremated ashes to a priest at first, and then the priest gives them a list of requests that their mother had before passing away. And before the Down syndrome brother is able to, or wants to, rather, much to the reluctance of his older brother, the the brother with Down syndrome is supposed to be sent to an assisted living facility with a, a distant relative of theirs. But with with his protestation, the older brother decides to carry out the wishes of their dead mother. And there is a lot about this film that is very funny, but it's also very touching. And I... It's one of those short stories, not just short films, but short stories where you get a sense of what went on with these two brothers as they were growing up and as they live on this farm in a remote section of Ireland. But it is also screamingly funny sometimes, some of the requests that they grant for their mother's cremated ashes, including one that involves uh, a series of balloons because one of her wishes was to ride on a hot air balloon. And to their own devices, they they blow up, you know, just regular balloons with helium as opposed to jumping on a hot air balloon themselves. And this movie definitely reminded me of that sly Irish humor that was in The Banshees of Inna Sharon, which I absolutely loved. So The Irish Goodbye stays with me. I think I, I will acknowledge that my bias is I am of Irish descent. I'm actually a dual citizen of the U.S. and Ireland, so maybe that's the reason this movie spoke to me more than The Red Suitcase. I think that The Red Suitcase is going to win the Academy Award for Best Live Action Short Film, but An Irish Goodbye is my personal favorite. So just to recap, the films that I loved are From Best to Least Best, An Irish Goodbye from Ireland, The Red Suitcase from Luxembourg, 
Night Ride from Norway, The Pupils from Italy, and Ivalu from Denmark. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. And before the break, I gave you the list of films that I thought were the best of the Oscar-nominated short films in the live-action category. Now I'm going to go over for you the Academy Award nominees for Best Short Film in the Animated category. And unfortunately, I can't do the documentary category uh, for short films today because I haven't seen them yet. But I'm probably going to be seeing them next week. And I'll definitely review them for you on a future show. So, for the nominees for Best Animated Short Feature... I'm going to do the same thing that I did for the live action category, which is go from my least favorite to my favorite. But my favorite does not necessarily mean that it's going to be the one that's going to win. And I'll tell you the one that I think is going to win, um, regardless of whether or not it is my favorite. But I'll just tell you exactly what um, I'm thinking. So my number five favorite amongst the nominees for the Academy Award nominees for Best Animated Short Feature is The Flying Sailor. This is brought to you by Amanda Forbes and Wendy Tilby, who created this film and distributed it. It's a movie that is actually based on a true story, and it's animated. It's about a sailor who was on the docks of the shore one day, and there was a ship that was full of TNT that collided into another ship and exploded. And this sailor was catapulted from the docks where he was standing or walking. And somehow he landed in another place and survived. And the movie doesn't really exactly have a story. It just, it's more of an art film and I respect it for that. But, the fact that this sailor actually survived this explosion after being launched however many feet and landing on the hard ground, that could be a story in and of itself. But instead, the movie just shows you the sailor flying through the air in slow motion and his sailor clothes being torn off. And that's really about it. And I think that as an art film, it works. And the hand-drawn animation is very good. But I don't think it's the best film of the films that have been nominated in this category. So, The Flying Sailor is number five on my list of most favorite 
uh, animated short films that have been nominated for Oscars. Number four on my list is a film that's called The Boy, The Mole, The Fox, and The Horse, which was released on Apple TV. It's a film that's a collaboration of um, America and Great Britain. And it's a film that combines computer animation and hand-drawn animation. And the film does look very beautiful. In addition to that, it is based on a book. And it's about four unusual friends that come together and survive the wilderness. There's a boy who's lost and can't find his way home. There is a sympathetic mole, a potentially dangerous fox, and a helpful white horse. And as these three animals are trying to find the way home for this boy, they share truths about life as they search for their home. However, the boy learns that home is not always a fixed place. So this movie premiered on Apple TV Plus on Christmas Eve 2022, and it's also, uh, it also aired on BBC One. And it's a film that reminded me a lot of some other stories like Winnie the Pooh or The Little Prince in the sense that it wasn't just a cute story for kids, but it also delved into some philosophy. But at the same time, I did sort of feel like I wanted the boy to go home as opposed to just staying in the frozen wilderness with these three animals and he hadn't had any sleep or anything to eat for three days. So I was concerned about the boy, but I did think it was a cute story and I did think that the animation was good as well as the uh, voices of the characters were also very intriguing. I thought that was very well cast. So the boy, the mole, the fox and the horse is number four on my list of favorite films of the animated short category. My third favorite film in the animated short category is My Year of D*****. And this is a film that is not for children. And they actually have a disclaimer during the shorts showcase between the Oscars and shorts.tv where they say, if you have any children, take them out of the theater now. I don't know if that's the best tactic because that would just probably make me as a kid want to see the film even more. But rest assured, it's a film that's not for kids. It's a film that was written by and directed by Pamela Rebon as well as uh, Sarah Gunner's daughter. And it's a film that comes out of uh, the U.S. and it is based on a true story about a woman who is 15 years old, and this takes place in the fall of 1991. She lives in Houston, Texas, and she is trying to lose her virginity. And the movie is very amusing and definitely doesn't pull any punches when it comes to both adolescent awkwardness as well as explicit explicit sexuality. But um, this film, I thought, uh, was very amusing. I wouldn't say it's my favorite, but I, I do compare it favorably to the rotoscoped films of Richard Linklater. And it reminded me very much of almost more of an R-rated Apollo 10 and a half, which also coincidentally was not only rotoscoped, but also took place in Houston, Texas in yesteryear. Although my year of takes place in 1991, whereas Apollo 10 and a half takes place in 1969, but 
my th- seeing this short film almost made me a little annoyed that Apollo Ten and a Half was not nominated for best animated feature film. But I- I'm not saying that my grudge against the Oscars snubbing Apollo Ten and a Half was my reason that I didn't love my year of. D- but it is a very good film. It's just not my most favorite of the nominees. Number two on my favorite of Academy Award uh, nominees for best short film in the animated category is a film that's called Ice Merchants. And this is a film that comes out of Portugal. It's directed by Joao Gonzalez, whose name doesn't exactly sound Portuguese, but he's probably an immigrant from Spain. He's a very young guy, too. He's only... As of the date of this show, he's 27 years old, and yet he's directed a very excellent film about these two uh, people, a father and a son, who live on the edge of a mountain, and they make a living from for they live a they make a living by harvesting ice. They pour water into a cooler, they have it freeze, and then they chip out ice cubes and then they parachute from their home on the side of a mountain down to the the village and they sell the ice and that's the way that they make a living every day and there's something that happens with the 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 house in which they live as well as their way of making a living that throws this movie into um a, a sense of disarray but it is a very beautiful hand-drawn animated film. It certainly has a dramatic story arc that that makes it stay with you. And I love the fact that this movie told a whole story without any dialogue whatsoever. And it's the only film of the nominees that has zero dialogue. The Flying Sailor also has uh, limited dialogue, but there is a narrator in it. But Ice Merchants just tells it completely straight, and it's a fascinating short film, but it's not my favorite. It, 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 I think it has a strong possibility to win, but my favorite nominee for best short film in the animated category is a film that's called An Ostrich Told Me the World is Fake, and I Think I Believe It. This is a film that was made in Australia by a filmmaker by the name of Lachlan Pendagron, And this is a film that is stop-motion animation all the way through. And it's about a a man who works in an office, and he has a very thankless customer service job. But eventually, things, very bizarre things start to happen that make him question the meaning of life as well as the meaning of reality. And the ostrich that speaks to him and tells him the world is fake is actually the least strange thing that happens to him here. And the this short film, An Ostrich Told Me the World is Fake, and I Think I Believe It, reminded me of a combination of the Wallace and Gromit shorts as well as the stop-motion live act, oh, excuse me, stop-motion animated feature Anomalisa, which was directed by and written by Charlie Kaufman. There are a lot of parallels there to which I compare an ostrich, you know, the rest favorably. But I really loved how they showed 
how the film was animated. And there were very creative ways where this office worker discovered how his world was fake. And I not only found it funny, but I also found it very fascinating in the metaphysical sense. So just to recap, the movie that is my fa- the the short film in this category, the Academy Award nominees for best short film in uh, animation. Number one on my list is an ostrich told me the world is fake and I think I believe it. My second favorite is Ice Merchants. My third favorite is My Year of D. My fourth favorite is The Boy, The Mole, The Fox, and The Horse. And my fifth favorite is The Flying Sailor. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. And now that I've reviewed all the movies that I have to review for you for this show, it's now time for me to get into my final segment, which is what's coming up next. And this is a spoken word preview of movies that are subject to being released in theaters for the week of February 27th through March 2nd, excuse me, March 3rd, 2023. And there are several movies that look to be in limited release between February 28th and March 2nd. I don't know if these movies are going to be coming to a theater near you. Possibly they're coming to you via streaming, but I don't exactly know. But I will briefly describe them before I get into the films that are coming out on Friday, March 3rd, 2023. First, there is a movie called The Man in the Basement, which is subject to being released in American theaters on February 28th, 2023. And this is a film about a Jewish couple who sells their basement to a former history teacher. And they discover afterwards that his secret life, that he had a secret life as an anti-Semitic conspiracy theorist. Ooh, this sounds chilling. As the couple struggles to rescind the sale, the buyer befriends their naive teenage daughter. Now, this film is not American. It's actually, it looks to be uh, from France, I believe. Yeah, because the director, Philippe Leguay, is from France. And the film stars Francois Cluzet, Jeremy Renier, and Berenice Bejo. I don't know if this film is coming to a theater near you. It sounds very chilling and also very complicated and problematic from a character standpoint. But if I do see this film, I'll review it for you on a future show. Another film that is subject to being released in theaters on February 28th, 2023 is a film that's called Lance, excuse me, Last Chance Charlene. And this is a film about a writer and actress who, reeling from her brother's suicide, tries to put her complicated life back together and finally make a break in her career. Believe it or not, this is actually a comedy drama, not just a drama, because movies about siblings who are getting over the suicide death of their siblings is definitely not a film that's probably going to be lighthearted in any way. For all intents and purposes, it seems that this film is American, although it doesn't have anybody in the film that I instantly recognize. It's directed by and written by Tony Gapastione, 
and stars Allison Ewing, Allie Mills, and Jeremy Ray Valdez. Actually, of these actors, Allie Mills is the only one that I recognize, and I recognize her from playing the role of Norma Arnold, who is Kevin Arnold's mother, on the long-running series The Wonder Years, and she has been acting steadily ever since. She's not a household name, but kudos to her for still hanging in there. Last Chance Charlene is a movie that I doubt will be playing in the theater near me, but if I see it, I'll let you know what I think on a future show. On March 1st, 2023, there's a movie coming out that is, or a subject to be coming out, that is called Primary Position. This is about two teens by the name of Darnell Jackson and Tracy Lavelle, who live a turbulent life in the trying urban streets of Chicago. Everything changed when Darnell convinces Tracy to skip college and join the military. And, oh, this is actually very interesting. While trying to do the right thing with helping the Ukraines against the Russians, oh my gosh, things don't go as planned. Darnell goes back to shoot... Okay, this is giving away some major plot points, but you don't... I've not seen any films so far that are about Americans who are fighting the Russians on behalf of the Ukrainians. I didn't even know there were any um, Americans who were fighting on behalf of the Ukrainians. But this is a film that made its official debut on November 11th, 2022. It's directed by and co-written by Robert Amperin and stars Robert Amperin as well as Omar Gooding and Chris D. Lofton. So a couple of familiar names there. Omar Gooding is actually the younger brother of Cuba Gooding Jr. And unlike Cuba Gooding Jr., Omar Gooding, while not a household name or an A-lister, is still in a better position as an actor and as, as a person than Cuba Gooding Jr. has been, particularly because Cuba Gooding Jr. has been canceled for reasons I won't get into. But Primary Position sounds like a very intriguing film. If I'll see it, I'll let you know what I think on a future show. A film that is coming out or subject to being released on March 2nd, 2023 is a film that's called Spoonful of Sugar. And this is about a young girl by the name of Millicent who is taking a semester off from her studies to concentrate on her thesis about children with severe allergies, which makes her the perfect person to take care of little Johnny, a sick mute child who suffers from every allergy under the sun from nickel to artificial fabric. I don't know about you, but I would rather go to school than deal with a kid with all these allergies. But he has an overbearing mother named Rebecca, who is an accomplished author who is focused on her latest book release, while his dissatisfied father, Jacob, spends sweaty, shirtless days toiling away on a carpentry project in the backyard. So this film sounds kind of like a quirky comedy, but it's actually a horror film, believe it or not. And you could tell it's a horror from, from the poster, but the yeah, the movie's synopsis that I just read makes it sound more like a comedy. I don't think this is a film that I'll be seeing in theaters, but if I do, I'll let you know what I think on a future show. Now on to the films that are coming out, or some of them that are coming out on March 3rd, 2023, which is a Friday. The biggest film that's going to be coming out in theaters on March 3rd is a film called Creed 3, which is the ninth film in the Rocky franchise, as well as, as you might expect, the third film about Adonis Creed. And this time, Ryan Coogler is not directing. Michael B. Jordan is taking a, a page from Sylvester Stallone and directing a, a Rocky franchise film himself. What's even more interesting about this 
film is that Sylvester Stallone is not reprising his role as Rocky Balboa. And it's too bad, but I have the feeling that Sylvester Stallone's character, Rocky Balboa, will be killed off. I don't know that for sure. I'm just speculating. But Michael B. Jordan returns as Adonis Creed. Tessa Thompson returns as his wife, Bianca Creed. Uh, Felicia Rashad returns as his biological mother, Marianne Creed. And Jonathan Majors, who is in Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania, is making his appearance as Adonis Creed's rival, Damian Anderson. And this film is about Adonis Creed, who is now thriving in both his career and family life. But when a childhood friend and former boxing prodigy resurfaces, the face-off is more than just a fight. Now, this is kind of interesting because in Creed 2, Adonis Creed took on the son of Ivan Drago. And for those of you who know your Rocky history, Ivan Drago was in Rocky IV. He was played by Dolph Lundgren. And he killed, unintentionally but still killed, Apollo Creed. And I'm not giving anything away about Rocky IV, but that was in the middle of the film. So that fight in that movie was high stakes. I can't imagine this film and this fight being of higher stakes, but the movie promises that it will be. And I'm very intrigued to see how they're going to explain the disappearance of Rocky Balboa. And I know there are some reasons that Sylvester Stallone didn't sign on to reprise his role uh, as Rocky Balboa. And this officially makes the first film in the Rocky Balboa universe where Sylvester Stallone is not in it. I'm, I'm interested to see this, but Creed 3 is definitely a movie I will see, and I will review it for you on a future show. That just about does it for this episode of Words on Film. Words on Film is the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures, and I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke, reminding you that the views and opinions expressed on Words on Film about movies or other topics are solely those of your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. They do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of any employees or volunteers who are working at WBCA or the station as a whole. Until I watch a whole bunch of brand new movies, this is Dan Burke saying I'll see you at the movies.